It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Two moms looking for inspiration wherever wherever we can can find it. it. Hello, this is episode 114 of Tangential Inspiration. My deep dive today is Coretta Scott King, the wife of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. I'd originally planned to do this as a one-part episode, but I learned so much about this amazing leader that I can't do it in one part. I definitely need at least two parts, so I'll finish it next week. I'm also going to share a heartwarming story of some very kind fifth graders in Minnesota and a super inspiring runner who has created a community for her people. I'm so excited you're joining me for some inspiration. Back in episode 17, Amy and I chatted about Greta Tenberg. If you don't know who she is, she's a young activist, now 20, from Sweden. She started a protest regarding climate change back in 2018, all by herself. She shared her solo protest on her Instagram, and it totally blew up. Similar protests by students and young people started happening around the world, and Greta became the face of climate change and activism. She's met with world leaders, spoken before the UN, and has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize three years running. Time Magazine has listed her as one of the 100 most influential people in 2019. This girl is amazing, and best of all, she's not afraid to call out world leaders on not acting quickly enough or doing enough to halt climate change. I just wanted to give a quick update on Greta because on January 17th, she was arrested in Germany for protesting a coal mine expansion. A whole town had been taken over and was about to be demolished to make room for mining of coal, and protesters had occupied the town and the area next to the mine. Police were called in to clear the protesters, and after several warnings, the police moved in and physically restrained the protesters, including Greta. There's some amazing pictures of her being hauled away by three police officers in riot gear, literally like picked up and carried off. Fortunately, she was released after a few hours, but I have to admire the guts and determination of this young woman for sure. And I definitely need to be more like Greta. I've been a runner for longer than I'd like to say, mainly because I've been around a while, but I've literally done hundreds of events, everything from 5K fun runs to marathons to almost 200-mile relays. One thing I've noticed in these events and running in general is that most of the participants tend to be a little white. That's not to say there aren't ethnic runners by any means. I mean, look at all the amazing runners coming out of Africa and South America. But here in the United States, event runs that are open to amateur runners are definitely mostly white runners. This is such a phenomenon that Runner's World once wrote an article called, Why is Running So White? A survey done in 2011, including 12,000 respondents, found that of core runners, people who train and enter events regularly, 90% were Caucasian, 5.1% were Hispanic, 3.9% were Asian or Pacific Islander, and only 1.6% were African American. Reasons for this range, from there only being a few role models, unsafe streets, and financial pressures. One of the reasons given is simply, you do what your neighbors do. If your neighbors aren't out running, it's less likely you're going to do it. So let's talk about Verna Volker. Verna grew up 
on the Navajo Nation Reservation in New Mexico. She's the youngest child of 10. Her first three years of life were in a traditional Navajo hogan with a dirt floor. She's proud of her heritage and has always worked to increase the representation of indigenous people in the community. In 2009, Verna, a second grade school teacher and mom of four children, was hoping to lose some weight. She got more active and eventually started running. As she looked at fitness media, she didn't see anyone else who looked like her. As she put it, a chubby, middle-aged Native American. She decided to change that. She went from a brand new runner to an ultra marathoner. I want my daughter to see an example of a Navajo woman who set her mind and heart on big mountains and made it to the other side. Though not easy, it's possible, Volker posted. In 2018, she started an Instagram account called Native Women Running. She started posting her own runs and accomplishments on Instagram, but she never expected it to take off like it has. She now has a community of 30,000 Native American women runners. The group has sponsored teams at the Boston Marathon and other major races and has held its own charitable runs that have raised more than $150,000 for the charity Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Indigenous women have been especially susceptible to domestic violence and human trafficking. Verna has run one 100K race, four 50K runs, and two 50-mile runs so far with a lot of shorter runs to her credit. Those are some grueling runs, so some mad respect to Verna. She's even obtained sponsors like Hoka and Lily Trotters, and she's not shy about holding her sponsors to their promises about diverse workforces. She also provides tips on how they can be more impactful allies with Indigenous people. It was important for Verna to give her people representation in the running world. I started Native Women Running because I didn't see myself in running, which is such a white space centered around the blonde, fit, fast girl. But for me, it's every body type and every group of people, specifically Native women, representing their tribes and sharing their journeys, no matter what level they're at, Verna says. Many people don't realize that running has long been part of Native cultures. Even though I found running later in life, I remember hearing a story growing up that was passed down from one generation to the next. When you wake up in the morning, before the sun rises, you run to the east and greet Creator and say your prayers, which helps you stay in balance in life. Now that I run, that makes so much sense to me. Virna has worked to give Native women more access to running by sponsoring teams, providing scholarships to pay for races, and working with race companies to provide free race registrations. She sees running as a way to build community. The Native Women Running Instagram has become a place for Native women runners to share their stories from all over North America. It's no longer hard to find examples of Native women running. Virna wants to expand her team, which consists of Virna and two assistants, and create running groups all around the United States and Canada. She also wants to work with more fitness companies to increase inclusivity, not only in their workforce, but in their media presence. She's now a global ambassador for Hoka Running Shoes. I just love the energy and drive of Virna Volker. She saw a need for her community and decided she would fill it. Running can be a great stress release. It's good for your heart. It's a great way to make friends. I want to be a Verna, and I think the world needs more Vernas. In the States, we just recently celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a federal holiday that came about in 1983. Actually, it wasn't observed until 1986, after more than a decade of pressing for it. 
And while everyone has heard of Dr. King, I'd be curious to know how many people are familiar with Coretta Scott King, the other half of the civil right powerhouse, the woman who picked up the baton after her husband was assassinated and continued his work, their work, until her death in 2006. After reading her book, My Life, My Legacy, My Love, I'm ashamed to admit that I was so ignorant. While Coretta Scott wasn't ever awarded a Nobel Peace Prize like her husband, her list of accomplishments is too long to get through in a podcast, or even two. I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface, and even with that, it's still going to be a two-part chat. Coretta's parents, Obadiah and Bernice, were farm owners committed to the education of their children, so much so that her mother made a makeshift bus out of Obie's truck to make sure that black kids would be able to get to school. For them, education was a path to a better life, so when school was too far away to walk, Bernice loaded the girls into the truck and then picked up anyone else along the way who needed a ride. I love picturing that sight. It definitely beat the days when Coretta and her sister Edith walked to school and the bus would drive by with white kids shouting insults and the bus kicking dust in their faces and mud on the days it rained. These girls were tough, which is a good thing because they were most certainly given an unfair hand. Coretta's great-grandmother, a former slave, was the midwife for Bernice, Coretta's mom, when Coretta was born. Bernice only had a fourth-grade education. Scott King pointed out that black students had to pay for their books, not get them free like the white kids, and they also had fewer school days, as in months shorter, and their schools cost money. The Scots worked hard to make sure their kids had better opportunities than they had. Obie worked in a sawmill. That was the father, which I love that his name was Obie. It reminds me of Star Wars. And by the time Coretta was born, he had saved enough money to buy a truck to haul logs. When the Great Depression hit, he lost his job, like many people, and it made things especially difficult. At six, Corinna would join her grandfather out in the family garden to help tend it. By ten, she was out picking cotton to help pay the bills. Apparently, she was a bit of a tomboy, which might have helped give her her feisty spirit. When she got older, she worked as a domestic, one time working for a woman who expected Coretta to know her place. The woman was so demeaning, expecting her to come in the back door and basically treated her like a slave, just one who earned a meager paycheck. It got to be too much. She couldn't take the humiliation, and she quit. Already, I admire this young woman. Heading out to the hot fields to pick cotton to help her family is definitely admirable, Then, to refuse to be treated like a second-class person impresses me, too. Her mother had reminded both Coretta and her older sister, Edith, that they were worthy to be treated with respect. You're just as good as anyone else. You get an education and try to be somebody. Then you won't have to be kicked around by nobody, her mother would tell them. I have a feeling Coretta's toughness ran in the family. The Scots had to be tough. Often they were threatened by the white people in town. One day, the threats became a reality and their house was completely burned down. The family had to move in with Obi's parents for a time. Later, Obi opened up his own sawmill after saving some money, and it was doing quite well. When a man offered to buy it, he refused. As the man left, the man told him it wouldn't do him any good. Anyway, next thing, Obi's business was burned down. Just when things started to be turning around, things would be taken from him. Eventually, he saved up enough money to open a grocery store. Coretta admired the tenacity of her father, and I think she inherited that from him, too. He just wouldn't give up. He might get knocked down again and again, but he wouldn't stay down, and he continued to get back up. 
Coretta graduated valedictorian in 1945 and headed off to Antioch College, where her sister attended and sent back letters praising the college. When Coretta arrived, she discovered there were a few things that Edith had left out of those letters. It was evident they were a long way from equal rights, even at a more progressive school. She studied music and was known around campus for her singing. Coretta decided to become a teacher. Part of the program included a student teaching program of sorts. The school Coretta wanted to teach at refused to have a black teacher, so she was forced to teach a class back on the college campus. Definitely not the same, and only one more reminder that she didn't have the same opportunities as the white students in her field. She tried to get the college to change the school's mind, but was unsuccessful. Still, she didn't hold a grudge, and it reminded her of the importance of demanding equal rights. Coretta joined the NAACP and other organizations to promote equal rights. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was formed in 1909 and was the first civil rights group in the United States. Their goal was to make sure black people had the same rights as whites. In 1950, Coretta sang in a concert to support black rights. The famous singer, actor, and activist, Paul Robeson was a star of the show, and he encouraged Coretta to continue performing. Coretta wanted to continue her studies and headed to Boston, arriving there with just $15 in her pocket. She wanted to attend the New England Conservatory of Music. Not sure how she'd swing it, she headed there on a leap of faith, and it worked out. Shortly after her arrival, she learned that she had won a scholarship. She also took on some cleaning jobs and was doing some office work, and surprisingly, the state of Alabama pitched in. Since Alabama didn't offer music programs for gifted black students, it was forced to cover some of Greta's expenses while she was attending the program in Massachusetts. She was a busy girl, but still found time to date. For a couple of years, she dated a Jewish man, but after a family get-together, they had a discussion that they had to be practical and consider what would happen if they got married and had children. They decided it would be unfair, and they parted ways. A friend asked Coretta if she'd heard of ML, a student at Boston University studying religion. At the time, Martin Luther King went by ML. That's what his friends called him. She wasn't interested, thinking that a minister would be too stuffy. But still, she agreed to a date to appease her friend. Martin was an extremely bright man, an excellent student. He had skipped two grades in high school before attending Morehouse College. He called Coretta and talked incessantly, making her even less interested. When they went out on the first date, she wasn't all that impressed with him either, at least at first. He seemed much younger. That's why he had a mustache. He tried to look older, and he was on the shorter side. Still, the more they talked, the more charming he became. She learned that they had the same thoughts and ideas. Both had a desire to change the world and work for equality. At the end of the date, Martin told her, The four things that I look for in a wife are character, intelligence, personality, and beauty. And you have them all. It was too soon for Coretta, and there were two major things blocking their relationship. Martin had been dating a girl in Atlanta, and his father really liked her. On top of that, this was in the 50s, and women were expected to choose marriage or a career. They couldn't have both. Hard decision, since Coretta was an independent woman, and she wanted a career. Obviously, we know that she chose Martin and hoped, just hoped that she could have both. After a rocky introduction, she won the approval of Daddy King, as they called him, and on June 18, 1953, he married them on the lawn of the Scott family home. 
He was the minister of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, which I find it funny. That always reminds me of A Christmas Carol. Fighting the traditional expectations from the start, Coretta chose a pale blue waltz-type dress as her wedding gown and requested that the sentence about obeying your husband be dropped from the wedding vows. I love this woman was a feminist before it was actually even a thing. Because they were in the South, the newlyweds weren't allowed to rent a hotel room. And they ended up spending their honeymoon in a room at a friend's house. The friend was an undertaker, so basically they spent their honeymoon in a funeral parlor. What a way to start a marriage. In the South at the time, there weren't hotels for blacks, so that was the best they could come up with. After the wedding, they headed back to Massachusetts and finished up school. Coretta was elated when Martin got a job at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. She was just so excited to be going back to the South. She taught Sunday school, bought a piano, and was soon singing for small towns again. She had changed her major, too, to education so she could help supplement their income, teaching. Definitely unconventional at the time. Also exciting... The Supreme Court had ruled just months before their wedding that having separate schools for blacks was unfair and thus was the beginning of the civil rights movement. Martin organized a church committee to help others, beginning with showing blacks how to register to vote. He was gaining a reputation as a leader and an inspired speaker. They also started a family naming their first baby Yolanda, but they called her Yoki. Two weeks later, on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat after a long day working in the Montgomery Department Store. Back in our very first episode, I talked about Claudette Colvin, technically the first woman who actually refused to give up her seat. When Rosa refused, her arrest triggered a movement for change across the country. We've also talked about the bus boycott too, Martin being one of the organizers. Blacks made up 70% of the writers in Montgomery and Martin always promoting peaceful demonstrations and protests, thought it would be an ideal way to get some attention in Montgomery and across the country. Coretta was nervous the first morning of the boycott. It was planned for the day Rosa Parks was released from jail. She got up at 5.30 in the morning waiting for the bus to pass by their house. The first bus passed by. No one was in it. She called for Martin so that he could see. Shortly after, another empty bus drove by. I'm still so inspired by the determination they had during the boycott. We're talking over a year, walking miles to work, riding bikes, hitching rides, and taking taxis. They came together. They worked together and supported the common cause. And talk about inspirational. As Martin became a civil rights leader, Coretta was behind the scenes answering phone calls and dealing with mail to make sure information was relayed. It reminds me a lot of when Amy talked about Bob Goff and his sweet Maria. Bob can only go change the world because he has a teammate taking care of everything else at home. And for Martin Luther King Jr., that was Coretta. The longer the boycott carried on, the more frustrated leaders in Montgomery became. Even jailing Martin once for driving 30 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone. Coretta had told him not to worry about being arrested, that it would actually help gain momentum for their boycott. And she was right. It made news all over the country. While that was exciting, it also brought out the haters. One night, Martin was in a meeting and Coretta was home with Yoki. She heard a noise at the front and then a loud thud. Running to the back of the house, thank goodness, before the bomb went off. Instinctively, she answered the phone to hear, Yes, I did it, and I'm just sorry I didn't kill all you. Coretta's parents begged her to come home, but the cause was just too important. 
The threats continued as the boycott carried on. One year into it, Coretta decided to organize a concert in New York City where she could sing and earn money for the cause. It was to raise money, but also to let the North see what was happening in the South. She shared passages of books, told stories in addition to singing. Not only was the concert a huge success, but Coretta had found a way to combine her two passions, singing and working for justice. More good news came when a few weeks later, Montgomery officials agreed to the writer's demands and there would be no more white seats on the buses. The boycott had been a success and a reminder of the importance of peace, perseverance, and unity. It also solidified Martin Luther King's place as a civil rights leader and just as important sparked something in Coretta. She'd always stood up for equal rights, but discovered she could do more for the cause than solely support her husband. And that was important to her. Even though she still had the bulk of the domestic responsibilities, her freedom concerts gave her an outlet, a way to use her God-given talents for a purpose. Both of those meant so much to her. While she'd given up her dream to be a classical singer, her concerts were a way to have a little bit of that, all while educating and uniting people, plus raising money for the civil rights cause. I so admire her perseverance. She wasn't bitter when she gave up her dreams, which I admire in itself, but I love that she continued to look for ways to support the cause, besides just being the wife of a leader. Being Martin Luther King's wife would have been enough. It was plenty for sure, but I admire that she was always looking for ways to support the cause in her own way. Being Martin Luther King's wife was stressful, to say the least. She was always worried for his safety, and with good reason. They were constantly getting threats, and now that he was a national speaker in the face for equality, he was traveling more and more at a time before cell phones or computers. Besides speaking engagements, he helped organize a new civil rights group, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and it was taking up other civil rights issues, too, besides just transportation. Throughout it all, Martin encouraged peaceful ways to promote change, always nonviolent. Both he and Coretta were peace advocates, which amazes me considering all the things they had to endure with the name-calling, the threats, and the violence they encountered. Coretta stayed home as their family grew, being the minister's wife, but she made sure that Martin knew she was more than just a mom. Once, when they were having a discussion about all the time he was spending away from the children working for the cause, he reminded her that he had a calling. Coretta responded that she, too, had a calling from God. There was a reason she didn't want the word obey in her vows. She was her own person, not just Martin's wife or the mother of his children. She had other ways to support the cause, ways Martin couldn't, and I admire that she made certain that he was aware of that. They knew that Martin was always at risk of harm, being in such a spotlight. Still, they both felt their work was important, and they wouldn't let intimidation prevent them from organizing for human rights. One day in September 1958, Coretta received a phone call she had been dreading. She sensed it coming. Martin had been stabbed. He was alive, but it wasn't looking good. Martin had been in New York City for a book signing, and a woman walked right up to him and stabbed him with a seven-inch letter opener. Someone went to remove it, but Martin stopped them, knowing where it was lodged, he would surely bleed to death before getting to the hospital. Coretta flew to New York and rushed to the hospital. Even after he was stabbed, they still chose peace. As he recovered in the hospital, Coretta and Martin Luther King Jr. talked and decided that the woman needed help, not punishment. She was clearly mentally ill. I can't say I would do the same. 
In fact, I'm pretty certain I wouldn't. But still, they forgave her, and she was later institutionalized instead of going to prison. And this was just part of being married to a civil rights leader. You had no idea if they were going to come home. It worried Coretta, but it also prompted her to prepare for the challenges ahead. It was almost as if Coretta knew tragedy was in their future. And I still have a lot more to talk about. Coretta Scott King will finish it up next week. What most did not understand then was that I was not only married to the man I loved, but I was also married to the movement that I loved. Coretta Scott King. So when I was reading about Coretta Scott King, it really upset me when she would talk about how horribly black people were treated. I just had no idea. She talks about having urine thrown on them as they were walking down the street. There was so much hate for no reason other than one person having a different skin color than another. I have a hard time understanding how someone could be so cruel to another human And you still see that arbitrary hate today, whether it's against immigrants, Jews, Muslims, or trans people. Despite huge strides, racism is still alive and well all over the world, sadly. One thing that does give me hope is that the younger generations don't seem to embrace the hate. My kids couldn't care less if someone's gay or trans. A person's religion isn't an issue as long as they aren't trying to be pushy. Their generation seems to be much more accepting of differences. Their attitude is to let people be themselves. Their generation seems to have taken to heart Dr. King's message of judging people based on the content of their character and not superficial characteristics. This gives me hope. I recently saw a story on just this kind of acceptance with some school kids in Minnesota, and it just warmed my heart. At Glen Lake Elementary in Hopkins, Minnesota, the children love recess. And what kid doesn't love recess, despite the fact that right now, there in Minnesota, it's cold, like really cold. Honestly, I'd be camped in the library during recess, but the kids there go out and play. Some of the students at Glen Lake noticed that several disabled students in wheelchairs were not able to participate in recess activities. The children took note that the disabled students felt left out, and for them, recess wasn't fun. So the students of Glen Lake Elementary decided to do something about it. Class of fifth graders asked their teacher why there was no adaptive playground equipment for the disabled students. The teacher replied that the equipment was very expensive. The kids asked the next question, what if we raised the money to pay for it? It became a class project. With the help of their teacher, the kids figured out in order to buy and install adaptive playground equipment, it would cost about $300,000. Undeterred, the kids decided that they would try and raise the money. First, they did a change drive, collecting spare change from piggy banks, coin jars, parents, and the neighbors. Then they did a bake sale. Then they printed up fundraising flyers and went door-to-door requesting donations. Then they started cold-calling businesses asking for donations. These are some determined and enterprising young people. I can't imagine cold-calling businesses nowadays, let alone when I was in fifth grade, even for such a worthy cause. They got restaurants to do fundraising nights where a portion of the proceeds went to the playground equipment. These kids were relentless, carrying on the fundraising for months. They hit their goal of $300,000 this month, and the kids were elated at their achievements and the satisfaction of being able to help their fellow students. 
The student's teacher, Miss Julianne, says of her students, My future as an adult is bright knowing that this generation of students are change makers. They see something that needs fixing and they go for it head first. And those kids aren't done. They're continuing to fundraise to buy adaptive playground equipment for other schools in their school district. I just wish more adults could see the world through the eyes of children. We all could learn a thing or two from these kids. It doesn't matter how strong your opinions are. If you don't use your power for positive change, you are indeed part of the problem. Coretta Scott King. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.